1176, 1176. I bought my first one for 250 bucks. I still have it 30 years later. Dude, I'll give you 300 for it. I, I just sold a D version for 3,500 and was able to buy my silent air conditioner yeah, so right. I could record condenser mics in the room. Well, that's <laughs> certainly going to go up in value. <laughs> Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hello, rock stars. It's your host, Lid Shaw. I created this show to introduce you to real world recording professionals to hear their stories and learn from their experiences so that you can take your records to the next level and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Mr. Tommy Wiggins, a singer, songwriter, producer, educator, and mastering engineer now living in Nashville, Tennessee. He began his career in Minneapolis as an award-winning recording artist, releasing many records through the 80s and 90s, and even establishing his own record label called Chili Dog Records to focus on alternative music. With his experience in recording music, Tommy then added teaching audio to his resume at the Minneapolis Hennepin Technical College, and later as the program director for the Cuyahoga Community College's Department of Recording Arts in Ohio. Tommy is also creator, host, and artistic director of the five-time Emmy-winning music interview program, Words and Music, and concert performance program, Crooked River Groove, with 400 episodes since 2001. More recently, Tommy lives here in Nashville, Tennessee, and records and masters music, right here from his own studio, Tommy Tracks, where I'm happy to be joining you for Recording Studio Rockstars. Please welcome Tommy Wiggins to Recording Studio Rockstars. Tommy, my friend, are you ready to rock? I've always been ready to rock. I, you know, I get that impression about <laughs> you, dude. So I've done my version of an introduction, which I probably skipped over many things. Tell us more about who you are and, and how you got to be here. Well, I'm here right now because my wife, who is way smarter than me, and I follow her and her career uh, choices, uh, she is now at Vanderbilt, and before that was in Cleveland, and uh, we raised our children in St. Paul. So that's really the kind of the, tra the backwards tra trajectory. Uh, but really, I've, I've always been a songwriter. It's always what I've ever wanted to do when I grow up, and I'm still waiting to grow up. But I wanted to write songs. I wanted to sing songs. I wanted to record them with my friends and go play gigs. And here I am in Nashville still, you know, all these years later doing the same thing. Nice, man. So no no disrespect to St. Paul when I, I think I mentioned Minneapolis, but— You all do that. Why is it that we do that? Actually, my brother went to St. Paul. He went to McAllister and studied music there. So I know a little bit about that scene, and it's pretty fantastic. I learned how to write songs in the music practice labs on the practice Steinways at McAllister, where I went to school, and I met my wife. Nicely done. He met his wife at McAllister. What is it about McAllister? Well, it's a small school. <laughs> and actually today, not to digress too much, but today I'm wearing my brother's uh, T-shirt for his music school in Brooklyn, the Brooklyn Music Factory. So... There it is, full circle. There it is, yes. All right, so uh, Tommy, would you like to start us off today with a little bit of an inspirational quote, something to get us kind of excited about making records? Yes. Um, when I was uh, directing 
the recording program uh, up in Cleveland, Ohio at Cuyahoga Community College. Um, it was Cuyahoga Community College, CCC. So what I said is, what does CCC mean to me? It, it was a uh, it was a collaborative school. It was it, it's basically a community college. You know, it's it's like has four campuses, so it's pretty big. Uh, but it's create, collaborate, and build a community. Nice. If you have those three things in, you know, your heart and in your soul, it's my belief that you can be anywhere in the world and you can create, you can find people to collaborate with. And no matter if you're, you know, a thousand miles from any recording center in the world, you can create a community and do exactly what we're doing here and what you do in your studio and all of your podcasts and things like that. It's really about community because you can't make it alone. I mean, mu music is a team sport. It is indeed. And I like your uh, create, collaborate community. It's really full circle, right? It almost should be a circle, right? Because the community begets the creativity again in the collaboration. It just builds on itself. And, and the thing of it is, is that everybody in the world wants to be in a wants to belong to something bigger than they are. Because, I mean, we're just really little people, right? You look at, if you go outside at night and you look at the stars, uh, you know, who are we? We're these, this little speck of, of life form on this one dinky little planet uh, in the universe. Don't call my planet dinky. <laughs> I'm calling your planet dinky, buddy. Your planet is dinky, but it but it's what we got. And and the thing is, we all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And my job really has been, you know, I'm kind of the the Pied Piper of recording schools. And what a recording school is, the cool thing is, is that all of a sudden in a in two places, there weren't recording schools before I started one in Minneapolis and also um, in. In Cleveland, and all of a sudden, all the misfit toys come together uh, and find people of similar interests and, uh, you know, from all these generations. And I've been, you know, I did the, you know, recording uh, schools for, you know, I, I was the director for like 25 years and all together of all these things. And so all these generations of music and all these kids coming in with their version of what cool and what their sound is, which keeps me young. Because yeah. all the, you know, I'm hearing everything, you know, uh, and and uh, creating that community. So, in you know, I can go down now saying, okay, I created a school where several thousand people learned how to record their own music, and I mean that's pretty cool. But those people are have started studios with each other. They've started bands with each other. They're working in music stores. They're doing you know, and they're keeping keeping in contact with each other. And to me, that's the collaboration, and it just builds on itself. So, yeah, that's you know, really. I'm important. sure you're familiar with this, but there is a recurring theme or a dialogue sometimes that where the the old guard sees the new generation coming in and and says like, well, where, what are these kids going to do? Or the music industry is changing. You know, what are the where are the jobs for these new engineers or these new producers? What are they going to do? And it finally dawned on me one day that. We don't have to know. They're going to write their own story. You know what I mean? So the uh, next generation of music makers just simply, they create the world in which they're going to survive making music. It's true. And whether or not they end up making music as a financial you know, gain for themselves or not, or just a something that they can do that's part of them, 
to me is immaterial. I've always, both of the schools that I worked in were public institutions, and I have no problems with open entry people were coming in at a low tuition cost to be able to to figure out, hey, I, I like music. I want to record music. I want to learn how to do it and meet people who do it. I, you know, we're not going to get into this, you know, too much, but I have, you know, it, when, when it's a, a private institution, when it's a private college that's, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars a year, then those questions should be answered because someone's writing those tuition checks. Yeah, for sure. But but the same thing holds. I mean, if you're if you you've got passion, uh, you know, you don't need a recording school. What you need is, you know, we have a great place to manage manage the learning of recording and the collaboration in the community part of it. But the best people are just going to learn how to do it. They're going to crack the book and, or if they don't, the like, book's called your laptop. The book, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so, uh, you know, you know. Darn the money stuff. Uh, you know, you you record because it's stuff that's coming out of your soul. Yeah, I agree. I think that was the motivating thing for me. I didn't really know anything about the music business when I decided that this was something I wanted to do and had to do. I just went and did it. And fortunately for me, there was a school. I came down here to Nashville and went to Middle Tennessee State University, which a great school, a great yeah. school, and mm-hmm. probably a different tuition now than it was when I went there, because I think it was only seven hundred dollars a semester or something to go, you know, and and have this incredible facility to learn in. But you know, education is education, and liberal arts, you know, is 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 learning about the big wide world and all you know of the learning and knowledge that's that's come beyond you know from from before. And uh, uh, education for itself, to me, is is what you should do anyway. Yeah. Well, I don't want to skip forward too quickly. I think you got such a fascinating story. I want to keep asking you some questions about who you are. So you were up in in St. Paul and in, in Minneapolis area, Minnesota, then in Cleveland, and starting these schools for the first time. Tell us a little bit, like paint a picture for us. What was it like in Minneapolis and St. Paul at that time? Um, what was recording like at that time? Well, Minneapolis actually was a big center for recording because it was a big advertising center and advertisers needed studios. And so what happened was that, you know, a lot of ads were happening during the day. And I was part of that too. I started off as a voiceover engineer during the day and then learned how to, uh, from my mentor and was able to, uh, you know, learn how to record music at night. Uh, But there weren't any schools. So you had so I was given the opportunity uh, to with my mentor, uh, whose name is Ben James, who's an educator, and to develop a uh, feasibility study, if you will, because you know it is. Are there any jobs? Well, you know we're not going to have programs in vocational type programs if there aren't any vocations in which people right. can work. So I had to figure out uh, and got to figure out. Well, what is my curriculum? What is it that what we do? We don't know what we do. So I had to figure out, it, you know, and write a two-year course of curriculum of, you know, a course of study that started, you know, basic baby steps and worked towards entry level uh, and develop. Uh, once I developed the, the curriculum, we didn't have a building. So I had to learn how to 
work with uh, to, designers to build, building? to build the buildings. <laughs> yeah, I had to learn how, how to design studios. And I'd already done, you know, be, we all design our own studios from, you know, in the beginning it was like, you know, tack egg crates to the wall to, right. you know, to deaden the sound. People go, do egg crates soundproof my space? Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll hold on that discussion yeah. for a minute. Yeah. You can just call me later on and I'll tell you all about that. But, but this, you know, so, so, you know, I, by the time I had gotten to to work and figure figure out the studio portion, I'd already built a bunch of studios because I traded my carpentry labor because I knew how to how to build stuff right. for studio time because I didn't have any money, and, and so I had to build the curriculum, find good staff, learn how to teach. Luckily in Minnesota, there's the vocational education. There was quite a bit of coursework that we had to take to actually become licensed by the state. It was a, it's, As teachers. Yeah, in a very progressive state. Yeah. It really does, you know, education really does mean a lot in some states, and one of those is Minnesota. Cool. Land so, of lakes. No, and, sorry, that's, uh, that's Wisconsin. No, it? well, Wisconsin's got cheese and lakes. Minnesota's got gophers, mosquitoes, and lots of lakes. <laughs> cool. So, you know, something... I wanted to ask you about as an educator, somebody who's seen education in audio for decades now, mm -hmm. what do you see happening in education now? I mean, are you aware of the extent of online education that's going on for audio? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I am. And I think it's fabulous because you can bite off what you want, what you can chew at the time that you can chew it. Uh, and not everybody, uh, one thing I learned is that not everyone is ready for a full-time experience. Right. People just want to take what they think they need when they when they need it. Right. And just in time learning, right? Just yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, I've heard of that. And and just in time delivery of, yeah. of learning how to teach what it is you're going to teach before you teach it the next day, you know. For I, I prefer oops, just missed it learning. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, everybody learns different, and that's one thing that I figured out pretty early on and that that some people learn by doing some people learn by listening some people learn by having to have you show them how to do it and then guide them through uh, you know through the learning process and some people you know can't read or write you know and then how but but they still have the passion and they want to learn so right. so it's uh, you know you have to really kind of teach it everything a bunch of different ways to be able to hit everybody or you're missing people and you're missing your con you know constituents so to speak you know people who are putting their money down to learn something and but through the learning experience you really have to make it interesting and not necessarily fun but exciting and and have people want to be there yeah and if they're there then they're going to collaborate they're going to learn they're going to you know, want to be there the next day and they're going to ask a lot of questions. Do you see that kind of collaboration even in an online environment, you know, where people aren't going to a, a physical campus somewhere? I, you know, it depends upon the teacher itself. I mean, certain, certain subjects are, you know, good for online things. Certain subjects aren't, you know, it's, I think that it's up to the, Teachers now, now that there's so much online, and so everything is in the box, I think there, and because technology is allowing 
you know, webinars and it's allowing like real-time experiences where people, you know, are, are watching or doing something. And then the, the teacher can have control over the student's laptop, you know, experience as well. And I, I think that that's really kind of where things are going to go yeah. in, a lot, in a lot of cases. I'm not a fan myself. You like you like face to face. Here we are face to face in your face. studio. But but you know maybe because I'm old school and maybe that's how I learned. Uh, you know I'm I'm going to definitely get out of the way and let brighter minds figure out how to teach well, in the new uh, millennium. Let's let's I want to stay on this topic just for a sec because I I really respect and admire your experience as a teacher. Uh, what are some of the things that are really important? to teaching and vice versa, what's really important to the learning process in terms of, you know, schools often put together teaching programs where you have to, first you take 101, then you take 202. Once you take those basics, you're allowed to go to the advanced stuff. How do you see that same thing apply in the online world? And do you see that, um, are you aware, aware of something like that being a missing element in the, in the way people teach online or? Well, Okay. Is it too haphazard the way people are teaching online? You know, I don't have as much experience because I got uh, I left teaching four years ago, and uh, I, you know, haven't looked back in a sense. Now, what in terms of teaching based finding figuring out what the basics are? You teach the basics, then you teach intermediate, and then you teach advanced. Well, one of the things that of the the wonderful staff that that I was able to attract at, at Cuyahoga Community College in the Recording Arts and Technology Program, otherwise known as RAT, um, <laughs> and we have T-shirts to prove it. Um, is that is that you know education started out? The, just let's go back to what education is. Okay, so education has been going on since the Greeks and the Romans, at least Western. Western-style education. Right. All right, so there have been different methods of happening. As a academic discipline, recording arts. Okay, first of all, recording arts. That's one thing. Okay, it's a bunch of musicians getting together to record. And then you have to put a label on it called academic discipline. Right. Well, already you're taking what is passion out of the box and trying to formulate a way to sequentially teach people how to do stuff. Okay, well, mm -hmm. that's great. Well, the, the thing of it is, is that not everybody can take everything in sequence and, you know, you have a lecture and then you're supposed to have a lab right away to solidify the concepts, blah, 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 that you taught in the, in the lecture. Well, one of the things that we're finding out is how to integrate like a microphone class with a signal processing class with a signal flow class, with a music theory class. So what we're trying to do, what they're trying to do now from when I left is to integrate everything. And now the, at least we've got the full-time people and the part-time people being able to have that same experience. Now, I don't know what they're doing online. Yeah, you know, and and I know you're a, you you're a, you know a big online guy, and 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 I've had, I've had a lot of great teachers as guests on the podcast that are teaching online. So it's just very interesting to me to see you know how is that similar, how is it different, and so um, not that we have to go too deep into the topic, but I appreciate you sort of you know putting it in an outline like that. Yeah, at a certain point, I I don't know. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, cool, man. Well, so uh, let's jump into one of my usual questions. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, Can you share a story with us? You know, you've been in this, you've been doing music for years and years, decades even. Can you share with us a story of a of, of failure moment for you that where things really kind of turned out to be a great learning experience? Well, in terms of learning experience, you know, one of the things that I do really well is to bring people together and we find a focused goal and we go towards the goal. One of the things that what I've had to go beyond was the fact that I can't do anything. It's not my way or the highway. It's it's something that I can't control everybody. And the best way to get uh, the best out of people is to create a place where they can work, but don't interfere with what they're doing. So to, to bring it to the session is that I, in the beginning, when I was producing records, I was trying to control too much. Mm. When it was, you know, where where... Maybe it was that I was insecure enough to to not be able to trust people into into how to okay I've got you on a session right and I'm and you're and, I, and you're the guitar player you know in the guitar chair and I'll allow you to come up with your own licks uh, and your own stuff and then uh, well no that's not right you got to do it this way I mean. What a what a way to to bum out a session right there. So all of a sudden, you know, and and I was a little too autocratic, and and right. so uh, I have learned how to gently guide sessions so that they would not be stillborn, and that, <laughs> and we would get music, you know, great music out of it. And you know, as far as the writing process, I was trying to write and be inspired and write and edit at the same time. And I have a really good friend who I've known for years and years, Phil Solom. And Phil said, you know, dude, purge, then edit, you know, as far as your creativity. Let everything flow out and then do the editing. So right. so that took a long time to do that. And that was that's a great learning experience for me. It wasn't necessarily failure because I was still getting stuff done, mm-hmm. but... Uh, I'm a lot happier. The sessions go smoother and everybody is happy and wants to come back. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes failure uh, just can look like not allowing the su- success to arrive soon enough. I think exactly that you're right. It's like, well, let's just see what happens, but be aware of it. Have your antennae up to go. That is a great lick that has become the hook of the song. Let's, let's work yeah. with that. Yeah. yeah. Let me respond back to you, say some of that back to you. What what I appreciate about you talking about bringing people together in the community and trying to allow them to be most creative is you're just trying to create an environment that allows them to bring out the best in themselves, right? Exactly. And so you're bringing the analogy over to making records in the studio too. It's the same thing with a band. You're bringing a band into the studio. You're bringing groups of people together to play and allowing everybody to uh, just be as creative as possible. It's true. Sometimes as when you're in the, when you're producing, you're, you're listening to what's coming out of the speakers. Your best stuff comes from just noticing, just watching and witnessing and hearing what's happening from all these people and helping them identify when they hit a, you know, a real peak. Yeah. You know, it's like, you just did something brilliant. I'm right. calling it out. <laughs> Let's do more of that. You yeah. Know? But, but I, I less of this. I also can completely understand because I've I've been there and I've 
tried to manipulate what was happening too much. And then you get to the end and you, and you listen back and you go, and you just have this deflated feeling. You're like, I kind of feel like, I mean, I got everything the way I was trying to get it, but why, how come I don't like it? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And a, another thought that comes to mind hearing you say that is that sometimes it's a controlling thought that doesn't want to trust a musician to do something, but sometimes it's also just being so um, attached to your own excitement. And maybe, you know, for me, er, when I was first doing it, feeling excited about every idea that I might have, and thinking that somehow I could just make the world, you know, the players play this idea or also being a little uncomfortable in my own skin about whether or not I was really qualified to be, you know, guiding the session in the first place, yeah. you know? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, what defines a producer? A producer is someone who says he's a producer or she's a producer and has an idea and it wants to be the, the trip guide uh, through this recorded song. Now, one of the things that I've learned is is that the best way to be a producer uh, in the studio is to be prepared. So you got your charts happening. You're bringing, you're working with the best people you possibly can can because the best way to be a good engineer is to work with really good musicians because then all of a sudden you're going to look like a hero. All you have to do is not screw it up, just record it cleanly, and all of a sudden magic happens. And then when th- the musicians get better. They're going to take you, bring you along with it because you're all part of the success story. Yeah. And and but in the session, you know, uh, whether it's a band or whether it's session musicians, you got to let people do what they can do, and then you're accessing what's going on, and then you can gently guide with your you know, with your practiced uh, uh, bedside manner. And and be able to just guide things rather than autocratically Phil Spectorize everything. Right. There's a difference between guiding through preparation and trying to do too much guiding in the moment such that you just missed the moment and the brilliant first take that somebody gave you. Right. Because you're, well, you're already focused on this idea that you're thinking about that's coming next. And one thing, actually a humbling experience was uh, when I was at Cuyahoga Community College, we had a really world-famous jazz festival. It's on its, like, 40th year now. And and I was the director of recording for, like, a 10-day, you know, run uh, every year with the most amazing musicians on the planet. I mean, our jazz musicians, you know. I mean, they're so beyond what normal pop, normal country, normal rootsy, Americana-y stuff, uh, and... They're just stratospheric. So what am I going to add? So as a producer, I'm more of a super recording supervisor. And, you know, if, if they play two takes, then they're done because all of their ideas are gone. You know, so you, you got to be prepared and get it on the first take. Uh, and then they might want to fix something, but, but then they go on. So uh, sometimes being a producer is, get, is getting the right people in the room and just getting, letting it happen. You know, it's funny. My brother, like I said, he was a jazz musician in St. Paul, and I was going to school for recording here in uh, Murfreesboro. And so in school, I was learning a lot about multi-tracks and how you can, as the engineer, the producer, manipulate and create sound and, and sort of control things or thinking you could do all those things. Meanwhile, I would go up and watch my brother have a recording session with his jazz band 
And they went into a local studio and he had everybody mic'd up really nicely. And it all went as a live two track mix right down to a dat tape. There was no changing anything after they played it. And the band would come in and they'd sit and listen and watching them have a dialogue about the take and the performance and the recording. It was so different from a multi-track pop session, you know, cause in a multi-track pop session, you might talk about what you're hearing back and the ways that you're going to change it and, and delete this and put this in and punch this in. And they didn't do any of that. You know, they hardly, I don't even think they talked about editing takes together. I think it was just like the emotion of a take and whether it was a keeper or not. And that was it. And that is it because you know, there's two kinds of recording. You're you're either documenting or you're creating. Choose one. Yeah, you, know, you can you can doc you can document in the studio if you have if everybody's on. Uh, but if somebody isn't on, then all of a sudden it's going to screw it up, and then you become, you know, the other part. You have to create and recreate and fix and yeah. And they just don't do that. It's it's all about vibe and energy and pocket, uh, and and I think that's. I've learned a lot about that. Plus, I really know how to record an acoustic bass. Nice. That's a hard <laughs> instrument to record. It is. it is really challenging. Let's and, talk and about tenor that. saxes. <laughs> let's let's not even leave that and, and, oh, okay. and alone. Tell us some great ways to record an acoustic bass. Okay, so you have to listen. What I learned is you first of all try to figure out what the player wants and what they're going for and what style of music it is. Because you know, you know, you know. It's not going to be uh, rock. You know, if it's if it's rockabilly, it's one thing. But if it's jazz or pop or acoustic, you know, rootsy stuff, it's it's a little bit different. So the bass is a huge instrument. How could you totally capture it with one mic? Uh, to me, I use two, um, and I use a typically use a condenser pencil uh, on the fingerboard. To be able to get the articulation of the uh, of the note the notes being played, but then you have to listen down by the bridge and the f holes to okay well where's the sweet spot of the low end mm -hmm. and so then uh, you know I'll usually use uh, a ribbon for that. And do you have a special tool that identifies where the sweet spot of the low end of a bass yes, is? Yes, it's called your ears. <laughs> and for anything else, I mean, you you really have to listen. I mean, you know, EQ is nice and everything, but moving the mic an inch is even nicer because you don't get phase crap, you know, from from the EQ. Yeah. And and that plus it's like, well, how big is the band going to be? If it's a huge band, if it, if it's like a big band, and you know, eighteen piece big band, you know, got you know all the all the parts of, of of a jazz big band, then you just want clarity out of the bass because it's going to be all you get, and they're usually parked right next to the the piano, which of course that's a quiet instrument. That's a very quiet instrument. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then the drummer's on the other side, and so you know to record and get clarity is really tough but really it's it's what is the arrangement going to do yeah. is it is it like a trio or a, like a small band which i really love doing three to five piece bands because every player has more chance has more space to play in you know their their role is a little wider so they can do more stuff within the role there's not many as many instruments around for them to be able to you know they're listening. They're playing by listening to others 
and you've got your role. So, the, but then the base has to be more clear and defined, uh, clear, uh, and or you have to have more of a body to it. Right, right. Because the drummer is not giving you four on the floor in a in a, in a jazz type of thing. It's the 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 kick drum. They don't even like calling it a kick drum. It's right. The, you know, the, it's the bass drum. But everyone's got their role, and you're trying to put these people in a room. And, and the best way to learn how to record acoustic jazz is to just listen to Blue Note and Prestige records from the 50s, the Rudy Van Gelder stuff. Yeah. And then you go, oh, I get it. Because that's what all these cats who are learning the book, the, the jazz book, they're referring to, and that's what they want to hear. Yeah. So you have to go back into... Well, what is it supposed to sound like in this particular genre? And the same thing, you know, okay, if, if you're doing a bluegrass band, what is each instrument? Who's doing the chop? What, you know, what are, what are, what are, what are these people, what did they grow up with? What do they want it to sound? Now, you know, if you want it to sound rock and roll, then it's, and create something different, then yeah. you can use different techniques. And then you might have a kick drum. <laughs> and it might be on every beat, right? In the bluegrass band. <laughs> but I mean, that is something remarkable about kick drums. I remember when I, I was so enamored listening to my Bob Marley CD in the car. And one day I was just like, you know what? I've never really figured out how to play reggae before. I know the upbeat on the guitar, but that was all I ever really paid attention to. How exactly does, does the drum and bass go together? And I listened and I realized you know, the kick drum and the the side stick, they just happen together on the three. Everything else is the bass or space. Right. And so the kick is never on the one. Whereas in pop music, you know, it's like the one and the three or it's the one, two, three, four, four on the floor kind of sound. So well, maybe maybe I learned a little bit about reggae from my console, which is a 1974 oh, yeah. MCI console that was commissioned and went down to Dynamic Sounds in Kingston, Jamaica. Uh, and so it was really a reggae board uh, until it came back here, and then it became a country board because uh, Hank Cochran had it in his house. Very cool, man. So I mean, so being able to use tools that have been used to create, you know, venerable recordings to me is is uh, it means a lot to me. It, it's like it, there's there's you know all of a sudden I have the responsibility of not screwing up with that with that lineage. Yeah. Well, I completely empathize with you on that. I know you I, do. <laughs> I also have an MCI console, the uh, the one that was at Studio C, a Criteria, um, and it did. I guess its version of reggae was that it did. I shot the sheriff for Eric Clapton, which actually introduced reggae to the world. Really, that's what I had heard. You know, it's he popularized that. You know, and he also gave J.J. Kale a career too. <laughs> now, didn't you say that your board? Uh, oh, that was the connection. Was that it was in Kingston? Yeah, doing reggae all the yeah. all the dang time. Yeah, and actually, uh, Clapton did some work there too, and and the Stones did some work there too, but not on this console. That was just a little bit earlier. They like to to hop around to places that were vibey, you know, and that's what brought them to like Muscle Shoals as well. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. To their work there. Yeah, what a cool way to record. That kind of takes us to our next question here which is a question about uh, sharing a moment of success for you. And I think we're standing in the middle of it. You want to tell us about your beautiful studio oh, here? Okay. Tommy's Tracks was designed for Tommy. <laughs> and I'm, of course, Tommy. Uh, the whole idea is to um, be able to record a f about a five-piece band and a vocalist at once because 
one of the things that I've always wanted to do, but I've never been able to to put together really effectively, is I've always read about and I've gone to, you know, to the Motown studio in Detroit and and I've been to Chess Studio and I've been to Sun Studio and um, and Muscle Shoals, uh, you know, and Fame and and these places. And I've always wanted to put together a studio band and be able to make music, you know, whether it's my music or whether me producing somebody else. And but but just to be able to work with with good players because it's a clubhouse and you have a, you know a core group of players and they know. You know, actually, David Hood from the Swampers told me this once. I, I met him fairly recently. He said, individually, we weren't really all that great, but we really played great together, and we backed singers. We backed singers. So it's a whole different deal when you're backing singers, you know, which means that you're backing songs. And so to me, I always wanted to have that experience, and so I was able to find this place in Nashville that is like 10 minutes from the row, but is, you you know, it's a, like, what did you say when you, when you came in and walked in for oh, the first time? I felt time? like I was entering a fairyland over here. Exactly. Cause, cause it's like very quiet neighborhood, a kind of a compound. We have a pool, uh, we have a hot tub, we have a little nature kind of, kind of deal and you write songs on the deck and, and it's a, it's the compound. So, good, good fizzy water too. You give me a fizzy water on our way. Well, to well thank you. It's uh, you know Kroger's usually has them on sale, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they're two twelve packs for five bucks. Okay. That's the way to outfit a studio right there. <laughs> exactly, and we and we we're powered by PBR as well. <laughs> <laughs> but but seriously, the, the the idea is to create a nice space where people can come and hang uh, that sounds good. That everything is there, uh, you know. Me, my the keyboard part of me uh, is well represented with about I call it twenty feet of keyboards, and they're all plugged in and ready to go. You know, one mute button away from being able to track. You know, one of your questionnaires that you you have you have people like me uh, that you're going to be interviewing. You know, like okay. Think of this. Think of this. Think of this. What's the most important part of this? You know, recording piece of recording equipment. And to me, it would have to be the Wurlitzer piano. Okay, tell us about the Wurlitzer. I love that. Sound. Okay, so I've I've been doing Whirly pianos since I was like nineteen, and at one point when I was learning how to write songs in a cabin up in Colorado, no electricity, so we had a car battery and an inverter, and every week. I would go down to the gas station and I'd charge the battery and come back up. And the only thing I had in the cabin, you know, is no running water, cook stove, all this kind of stuff, you know, chop wood, et cetera. I had a Wurlitzer Model 200 and I wrote some of the, the, my best. I, I learned how to be a songwriter there. So everything has to me comes out from the Whirly. Now, did you have a way to record your songs as you wrote them or did you have to just keep them all up here in this this big... Well, there, melon on top of your shoulders. Um, it was the melon on top of my shoulders kind of thing. But at that point, there was this thing, a new, a new uh, device came out that was called a cassette recorder. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was brand, it was brand new. new, right? It was, it was, seriously, it was brand new. I mean, we had a record deal back in, in, in that day, and we were doing demos for, um, for a label down in Denver and 
was able to, uh, you know, so they sent us to different studios. They didn't end, end up signing us, but but I was able to get a lot of those songs that I recorded up in the cabin, you know, when we get snowed in and stuff, uh, to be able to get them uh, out. And uh, the last thing I'm doing now is to digitize all of my huge box of quarter-inch tapes. So wow. I got all the two-inch done and, and the one-inch and the half-inch and the dats and the cassettes, but now... Now I'm looking around. Do you have a tape machine here for your, for your or well cassettes? I guess that's not too much. Well, of a challenge, actually, but. Here, here's the cassette machine that I have. <laughs> it's a stereo play school. It has two microphones. You can actually record in stereo. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful device, and um, I haven't actually used it recently, but um, it's it's a. We'll do it. We'll pause for an Instagram moment. So that's a good segue into the what are you excited about now question, which I would love for you to tell us about your mastering and what you do with mastering music here. Right. Well, I've been mastering uh, records since about since the early 90s. Uh, I remember buying my first hard drive, which is a one gig hard drive. It was a thousand bucks. And I bought that used. And uh, uh, a five pack of CDRs was 150 bucks. So there were 30 bucks a piece. You had, if it screwed up, you had the world's most expensive coaster. I mean, seriously. When I first started going to AES shows, there were, you know, Studer Studer 24 tracks were there. And I remember this little company called uh, uh, Digidesign that had something called Sound Tools. And all of a sudden, Sound Designer became... The format, you know, it wasn't Wave, it was it was SD Sound Designer, and I started mastering at that point. Uh, a quote in the box. Um, I've since gone totally analog, so um, there's a DA. So usually you're usually getting a a um, a digital file, and uh, you run it through really high class and, and high quality and really good sounding analog gear. And then you have a really good AD converter to get back and kind of finish your. Yeah. Your so if a client brings like you a digital mix, you take it out of the digital realm, run it through real stuff. Yes. Yeah. Is, that, is that fair to real say real stuff? stuff? Well, as opposed to. Uh, um, Simulation in the box of stuff. Real stuff. Right. Yeah. And then well, it gets captured again back right. into the. To the computer. Yeah, and I mean that—that's how I do it, and that's how a lot of mastering engineers do it. But now that plugins have become so good, they're—I mean—they're getting phenomenal. Uh, uh, you know, some you know mastering engineers are totally in the box, you know, and and of of high quality thing. But what I thought is that when I finished the teaching thing, and I still wanted to be able to make money, and you know, record my songs and. You know, write, record, play gigs, and you know that that's and make records. Um, you mean create, collaborate, and community? Oh yeah, that exactly. <laughs> the creation part, anyway. You know, I was good. You know, that was going to be my encore career was just mastering until I showed up in Nashville, and all of a sudden these musicians are like blowing my socks off. So I'm going, okay, well, Tommy's tracks is going to be a full service recording. However, because I want to produce singer-songwriters like myself, because I know how to do it, and I've you know done it for for decades, but mastering really is is kind of a, a niche that not everybody can do. Uh, my ears I've really refined and tuned, so I'm thinking half dB increments, and then it's not even a how 
you know, what frequency, but how wide of a curve, how wide of a cue you have or how narrow. And so to me, I want to make records that I sound that, that sound like records that I would want to listen to. And so yeah. the what I do in mastering is to become the artists and the producers, you know, I've got their back. I gotta figure out in mastering what is the intent of the record. What what are they going for? What, you know, what are you know, you've got maybe if it's an EP, you might have five or six songs, or if it's a full length, you're, you have 10 or 12 songs. You got all these songs that were recorded at different times, they were mixed at different times, maybe in different studios even, and you have to try to make a really great learning listening experience uh, for the listener. You want them to put the headphones on and to defy you know the norm of today of just being able to uh, shuffle your way through your day through your phone. Um, I, I want people to like take them away on an experience, and that's what the artists really want too. Um, so my job, you know, is to help the engineer who might have you know basically help people who are working in their own home studio bedrooms, which. They're, the EQ curves in their rooms are not to be trusted. Their speakers are not necessarily to be trusted. The placement of the speakers probably aren't where optimally they should be in the room. So just the physical anomalies are creating these weird frequency spectrum that then they mix and then they wonder out, well, how come, how come the bass is too boomy? Or how come, uh, you know, how come the snare doesn't pop? Or, you know, all these these kinds of things. Or how come the S's are everywhere? You know, well, that's because you use that one condenser mic on everything and look at the box to where the EQ curve is on that, on that one mic. And that means you've got 24 versions of extended high frequency. That's why you got <laughs> the S's. And that's why your cymbals are like, you know, blasting over everything. Okay. That yeah. end of side sidebar. Yeah. Well, I think you're speaking to a lot of the rock stars. Oh no, with home I Studios am. are listening to this show right now. Right, and in fact, uh, I've got a business. I've got a card for our studio. We are the Project Studio Mix Fixers. Nice, Project Studio Mix Fixers, because you shouldn't be mastering with that L2 plug-in that you have, because you still don't know where your frequencies are. And I've got, you know, speakers that, that cost probably more than your car. And, and I know exactly what they should, what, what the frequency response should sound like. And I master a lot of records and a lot of genres. I'm more boutique than, you know, I don't do it every day, but uh, I do it every week. It's a thing where you really have to maybe give up your control at a certain point in order to make a better, a bigger, a better record and a better sounding record. Well, I think also a lot of our listeners have an appreciation for records from decades ago, you know, uh, and so do you. I do. So you're going to probably know, you know, you know, there may be people who are trying to get a certain sound that you would recognize immediately and, and know exactly how to approach it. Which yeah, is cool. yeah, yeah, in different genres, and uh, and I've done a lot of mastering over the last few years since I've come to Nashville that have gone to vinyl, and you have to really master differently, which means sometimes you have to do two mastering jobs, one for CD uh, and one for vinyl. I've been lucky enough to uh, have a great, really good relationship uh, with Brendan Benson, who has a label as well, 
ready-made records, and I've mastered like every record on his label. And and I learned all every record. I learned how to be a better mastering engineer because you want that record to sound as good as old as those records, and the artists want them to sound that way too. Yeah, that's cool. That's... I do have a, a, little, a quick experience. Yeah, go ahead. Is that is that I mastered um, a record uh, by the Holland Brothers, which is called the Sun Sessions. Well, I did it after after I had experienced being in sun and know the sound, the physical, the sound of the room. And it was so cool to be able to have that in the back of my brain of, you know, how rooms sound, because every room sounds different, and then be able to master a record that was recorded in that room, that famous room. Right. So you, you know what, what to do, and sometimes you know what not to do. You know, okay, we have to keep the character of the room. So in terms of mastering, you know, the... My role is to help you create the best record you possibly can with the intent that you had and, you know, what you gave me. Now, give us an example of some of the ways in which through mixing or home mastering, for example, we tend to screw up that character that we had, you know, take a record that had something really great and we mess it up because we do this thing too far or whatever. Well, what I hear is that people crush the dynamics too much in ways that you can't fix. Once you have no dynamic range, once you've squashed the drums into oblivion, there's no way you know to get life back into them. And I think that's a, a, a common occurrence. The other common occurrence, like I was telling you before, is the fact that if you're using one mic that has a particular response curve on about you know five different instruments, it's going to you know build up that kind of frequency range. And I give the example of of the frequency range and the EQ curve of a condenser mic. So I would say nowadays look more towards um, towards ribbon mics because they don't have the high frequency extension, and start thinking about what you're actually doing as you overdub and overdub and overdub. Yeah, and if you're going to use the condenser mic for your vocal, maybe let that be the thing that you're using the condenser mic on, right? It puts it in a certain frequency spot in your mix and leave it alone. And yeah. another thing is that maybe use a different microphone for the background singers because if it, unless it's a true, you know, Crosby, Stills, Nash type of a thing where all the voices have to be, you know, like, in the same room at the same time. Yeah, they the sang same. on the same mic together, yeah, right? Yeah, right. Um, Beach Boys, Beatles. Yeah, all, the, all those. The, but what you should, okay, think of where the background vocals are going to sit and maybe use a different condenser or, or a ribbon mic or a dynamic mic for some so that there'll be a contrast between what you want to be the lead and then something to be, you know, that that's tucked in the background, and then you don't have to mix it because it's already there. Tonal contrast. Tonal contrast. Oh, I like that. That's what makes a, a great painting, right? It's exactly. contrast or a photograph. Well, I think of what we do is sound paintings. You know, that's what we do, and and that's what EQ is, and that's what you know what uh, echo is, and what reverbs are, and uh, you know, and the spacing. Yeah, so don't spill your paints and get a mess everywhere, guys. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> or you um, can call it mono. <laughs> so we're about to take a break and 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 come back for the jam session. Uh, but before we do, let me see if I got a couple more questions for you. Um, if you, well, yeah, let me ask you this one. So you may have answered this some, but see if you can say a little more about it. 
How have you seen recording music change from when you started to now? What are some of the ways in which it's changed? Maybe it's very obvious. So it used to be on tape. Now it's on a laptop. But what about the elements that might not be so obvious to everybody? I was lucky enough to come up with the first four tracks. And TIAC made a machine called the 3340. It was quarter-inch tape, and it was four tracks. That actually revolutionized. This is like pre-everything, but it was a thousand bucks and it revolutionized the whole recording industry because all of a sudden it gave the tools to make your own record. It, it, it started a new way of, re, of recording. So a recording artist could be, you know, could be someone who could take the whole project from writing the song to, you didn't demo the song, writing the song to recording the song and then learning that experience. So that really... Uh, really fueled everything. So the TIAC company, who then made you know cassette four tracks and and things like that, uh, it really democratized music recording. And it was the original laptop. Yeah, it was the original <laughs> laptop. And the Beatles did the same thing. I mean, they had they had really good tech, technicians and really good machines. But it was you know like four tracks, and then they bounce it to two, and then they do you know two more, and they might even go back a, another time. That allowed a whole new art form. I mean, seriously, a yeah. new art form. And then what screwed that up was the fact that you can do more than twenty four tracks of anything. And so if you, if you know, we, we used to be, we being everybody had to arrange your song because you only had, had so many tracks. And I remember doing an eight track. We thought one inch eight track was, was just great because you could have your drums on two tracks and your bass on the third track, usually the outside track because of edge damage and blah, blah, blah. And, but then you'd have this thing called the junk track where Everything happened, you know, you know, linearly, you know, it might have been the intro, you know, guitar riff, and then it might have been the, you know, the cowbell, and then it might have been the chorus, etc. And then it's the car horn, <laughs> in the middle of the song. <laughs> exactly. And, and some stuff might even be added live during the mix. But, but because you, you know, you, you don't have to pre-think and you can just go, oh, I can record this and I can record this. All of a sudden you got... You know, what are you going to do with 16 tracks of background vocals? Well, now you have to spend more time to winnow those down to whatever it is. So if you don't make choices early, you have it takes way more time to record. Yeah. So it is harder to make a choice later than it is to just make one right on the spot. Oh, yeah. Just it? make it, decide, okay, this might get me into trouble, but screw it. I'm just going to go do that. You know, I took my daughter to go look at puppies yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. Oh, nice. okay. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I like that segment. The first, the first puppy we saw when we walked in, we just were totally in love with. We didn't. I did not make the choice. It might have been wise that I didn't make the choice, but I just know that now t- to go back and look at more and keep thinking about harder, it's going to be a much harder choice than if I had just picked that first puppy when we walked in. That's know? because it was it's puppy love. The first <laughs> same thing with a take. With a take, it's take love. So you talked about, you know, the power of eight track or four track and and when there's more tracks, you know, what do you do with them? So, and you're a recording artist, a a singer songwriter making your own records. And if you have your choice of any kind of a recording setup for your next record, what would it be? I still like 24 tracks uh, because actually I use radar, which I bought uh, 
in 2001, and I've done this upgrade because it sounds good. It sounds the it's the most analog sounding converters. Uh, yeah, you know it, that I've ever been. It's it it, you know, it looks like tape. I think linearly. It is it it thinks linearly, um, meaning you start the song, you play the song, and and you you know you it can do a few things, but it doesn't have plugins. It's right. a recorder, right. and so I mixed. Eric Serafin taught me this one, Mixer Man. He uh, mixed one of my records, and I was able to watch him do it. You know, over the few days that it took, and he would mix to twenty check twenty three and twenty four. Like we couldn't do it with with two inch because you just didn't get the dynamic range. Right. But he was able to mix till you screw it up, back up, punch in. The punch ins are seamless, and so you can you know you your mix might have fifty edits as you go and did your mix, but you could do section at a time and you don't have to splice it like we have used to do in the old days. You'd splice in, you know, the chorus or whatever. Um and when you got your mix, it's the mix. Yeah. You know, there's no mix redos. Can you bring the uh the ver you know the the be the lead vocal up one half a dB, you know, that sort of thing that you can do now. Yeah. Which in a sense, is great. Some people have got beyond uh, the the problems of you know it's it's kind of like a rabbit hole of endless remixes. So uh, let me jump in on that comment too because I want to clarify that for listeners that what you're talking about is a system wherein you had 22 tracks coming off the radar. They're going through a physical console, physical gear and, and stuff. And then the, the mix is coming back on tracks 23 and 24. And so you get this great sound for the intro. And then when you want to make changes on the verse, instead of worrying about automation and stuff like that, you just simply get the verse sounding great and then back up. And when the intro finishes, you just punch in on those two tracks and drop into the verse and then listen to it. You know, if you're feeling it, it's a good it's a good mix change, right? And if you're not feeling it, you back up and do it again. Yeah, that's exactly how I do it. To me, it works. As an artist, it works. Um, as a someone who's doing it for money for somebody else, it might not, because if it didn't work, then you'd have to re redo the whole mix. And, and that includes all the patching, all the different gear. and Or you just tell them, sorry, you can't do it. Sorry, you can't start do it. This is what we did today, you know, and, and, that, and that becomes the mix. Everyone has to find their own way of working out how to make a record. And this is just my way. It's kind of old school. I'm looking this year to get a bigger Pro Tools system so I can have uh, 32 uh, I.O. Uh, for that. So I'll, I'll continue to record through the radar and use the converters, but then... You know, I'll either transfer it over to Pro Tools to edit and 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 mix. But when you're doing the final mix out, I'll have all of you know I'll have so many I/O. I'll run it back through the console. Yeah, and then I'll be able to have the the sound of the console and the sound of of the radar coming back in. But that's just me. Well, I'm going to follow that up by suggesting that um, for you, Rockstars, if you're li if you're mixing in a DAW and you're in your laptop or on your computer, you can actually do this trick. You don't need to use an older system to do that or even a real console. You can take your entire mix and route it all to a stereo track on the bottom of your DAW and record into that one. And rather than reaching for automation 
and sort of finding yourself distracted and lost in, in lines on the screen and trying to draw things in. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to just reach for the fader and just make the kick drum louder. You know, you can just push the faders until it sounds good when you hit the chorus, back up, drop it into record when it goes by, and, and you can create some cool stuff that way. Another benefit, I think, of doing what you talk about is that you're more likely to make real scene shifts from moment to moment than I think you would when you try and carefully manipulate the automation from, from section to section. I hate working on a mouse. On a mouse. <laughs> it's just so unintuitive to me. And, and as in, you know, frankly, as you, as you get older, your eyes get like really more weary and you can't see as well. So, yeah. you know, faders to me are, are, are like old school. I like to say it's kind of like trying to play guitar with the tip of a pencil. <laughs> No, I think that that's a great idea of create new tracks and then just have them route them. You can do the same thing linearly yeah. like I like I do. And then just grab faders and just turn turn knobs and faders until you like the sound and drop it into record and there's your new chorus, you know. All right, cool. Well, Rockstars, um, I will, as you know, include links to all the stuff we're talking about and links to Tommy's place so you can go check it out. And uh, we'll, we'll include some of your records in there too. Great. Um, in the show notes, which you will find at recordingstudiorockstars.com, or I've been finally smart enough to create rsrockstars.com, which is a lot easier to type in for you. And then just search Tommy and it'll take you right to this episode. And then also a reminder, if you're listening on your iPhone, you can simply open up the podcast app and then just you'll see the logo for, for us there and, and just tap on the screen and it'll it'll sort of disintegrate into the show notes and you can just click right through there for easy, easy follow through. All right, rock stars, we'll take a break and we'll come right back for the jam session. All right. Hey everybody, it's Lid Shaw and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. I really appreciate you and I really appreciate your time. And as a way of saying thank you, I've created a special mix tutorial just for you, Rockstars, totally free, called the Mix Master Bundle. With it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the tracks, and you get downloadable multi tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi-track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum kit, bass, and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter, and it's off my instrumental record, Skadoosh, and it's all available for you totally free right now. All you need to do to get it is text Mix Master Bundle to 33444 and I'll send it directly to your email. Again, that's Mix Master Bundle with no space to 33444 or you can go directly to mixmasterbundle.com, enter your email and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much Rockstars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. Hey, Rockstars, it's Lid Shaw, your host of Recording Studio Rockstars, and we're back now for the jam session. My guest on the show today is Mr. Tommy Wiggins. Tommy, are you ready to jam? Uh, what key, man? 
whatever key you want, dude. <laughs> uh, actually, I'm lying. I've got pre-written questions. You can't just jam in any key. Sorry. Okay, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> so as long as they're guitar keys, they, I don't. They, want, I don't want horn keys. I can't do guitar, flats as well. Guitar questions, anyway. <laughs> All right. Tell us when you were starting out and recording. What was one of the things that was holding you back from doing what you really wanted to do, or ended up wanting to do? Prob. Well, me myself. I was holding myself back because I was insecure uh, with the technology, and and it was all Greek to me. Yeah, especially then, right? Well, maybe maybe it's even more Greek now. Well, I've, there was a book called Modern Recording Techniques. It was like the first edition, and I had it by my bedside for a couple several years actually, and would just read. And I what what is I don't understand this. So I'm the kind of a learner that, you know, you, you can read so much, but then I got to get in there and patch and, and do stuff. So it's really uh, that kind of, you know, knowing my, what my brain was like right, and, and being finally being able to come to grips and say, okay, well, I'm just going to make a whole bunch of mistakes and I'm just going to do it until I think it sounds good and then remember what I did. As as I recall reading about your uh, your early bands, I think one of your first bands was were called the Mushrooms. Was that Mushroom? Yeah, <laughs> Mushrooms. Yes. and we well, lived up to our name. Let's just say, <laughs> let's just put it this way: Did band practice impede your ability to read the book sometimes? <laughs> yes, in fact, actually, uh, just recently, uh, one of the members of Mushroom uh, passed away. Right over to your left is his his SG bass wow. that I'm uh, uh, working on. Uh, uh, I'm either going to sell it or once I, uh, you know, and give the money to his wife, who was a good friend of mine from back in college. This is again, McAllister College uh-huh, back right in on. the day. And we're, you know, we were, uh, no, it didn't impede, but we were, th- this was actually before all of us were, were writing. But we had a really good playlist. Nice, man. Well, you know, I've recorded an SG bass before, and that is one of the subbiest Basses, basses okay. we ever got. Mm-hmm. Is that is this one also super? I don't know super yet, but look, something? it's got a P pickup as well, a P bass pickup. A well, I'm thinking of the EBO. Is that also You're the same thing as the EBO? Yeah, those, different uh, bass. Those Gibsons just yeah. had this miles of th- from the knees down. Nice man. Well, very cool. <laughs> All right. Well, so now, um, what was some of the best advice you received? Probably recording related. <laughs> <laughs> Post mushroom, you mean? Um, well, I, I mentioned before. Sorry, don't eat the stems. <laughs> <laughs> the best recording advice really is to be prepared. Um, you know, to go in and know your song. You'll waste less time in the studio. Practice your butt off, uh, especially with me being in Nashville as a musician. I'm using, you know, I look at myself as the luckiest guy in the room because, you know, the way to be better is to hire people and work with people that are better than you. And then you aspire to be better than what you are. So I'll, you know, if it's, if it's my session and I got a band coming in, I will just rehearse and rehearse and have that song as far as what I'm doing down cold. So you're, singing and playing your written songs with incredible musicians backing you up. Pinch me. And and just yeah, so, pinch me. So what what goes through your mind that moment like are you you start playing the first verse, do you just have this moment where you sort of transcend yourself when it all kind of comes together and you can't believe that this is music that you're responsible for? Right. And you know, you can't go actually there was uh, there was one time actually earlier on 
when I was making my first record, which is called Expensive Fun. And we brought this cat in who played with Maynard Ferguson. And, you know, he played like all the different horns. And he was playing so good. And it was it was tremendous, but it wasn't, it was too much for the song. And I, I went, Eddie Mena. Eddie, I think, is down in the University of Miami now. I haven't seen him in 40 years. Uh, and I said, Eddie, you are the best player I've ever been in a room with. However, what I need from you in the song is, you know, less notes, more groove. He went, okay, man, I'm here. I'm here for you. You know, and here's this cat with, you know, that, you know, is a huge, successful jazz cat. And, uh, you know, he was able to lock in. So yeah. that, to me, that was a defining moment is that no matter who you have in the session, I mean, I've had uh, Grammy winning people in here and country music, bluegrass music, Hall of Fame people in here and all that stuff, no matter what happens is you're the cat on the date right now. Yeah. And, you know, if they're, they're going to play the song because they're professionals. Yeah. And once, once I learned that, then it was like, cool. We can do this if I practice my ass off before. <laughs> so I'm so I meet the expectations of them. Well, I've seen that. It's like really great musicians check their ego at the door. Mm -hmm. Like they're especially know, great here. musicians will completely flip the whole concept on its head and move forward. You know, they can go from tons and tons of notes to nothing, hardly anything. Because you know, particularly working with musicians here, is they there tends to be a respect for the end product, which is the song. We're all just trying to get this song to make lift this artist up, the singer. You know? Yeah, and and right here in Nashville, it's the song. Everything revolves around the song, and we back singers. So if we're backing a singer, we're not going to noodle. We're going to play what. Our instrument is kind of designed to play, you know, with within the parameters, right? Uh, the guitar player is supposed to do some, you know, certain things. The bass player is supposed to do certain things. The drummer can't overplay and can't use too many cymbals. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, something, a common theme in trying to improve your mix is this idea to just simply get it right when you're at the source, when you're recording, when you're getting the arrangement right. It just makes the mix right, you know? And and so it's cool to hear you tell those stories. All right, so moving on, share with us a, a great recording tip, hack, or secret sauce, something that our, our rock stars can take home and, and use right now in their own sessions. Really, a secret sauce is less is more. The less you play, the more space you're going to create uh, and the more uh, drama you can create, uh, and eventually the easier it is going to be to mix. Because one thing that I learned early on, and I, I still fall prey to it, is that if, if it isn't going right, I'll probably add another instrument because that'll make it right. Well, instead, get the absolute best sound that you possibly can out of each instrument. And then all of a sudden you can have very few instruments and each one sounds like a million bucks. Yeah. Really. And you talk about this, the, the space in between the notes, the silence can be as powerful or more powerful than the notes themselves. Yeah. Uh, there's a quote, I think attributed to Rick Danko of the band. And it's like, he didn't play, play uh, notes. He played space. You know, and it's like whether he said it or not, great. I'll take. I'll take. So that. did Jerry Garcia. 
<laughs> when he when he uh, didn't say no to the mushroom. <laughs> All right. So now uh, share with us a favorite hardware tool, something that when you have it um, on a session, it just seems to make make for better sessions. One one seven six. 1176. I bought my first one for 250 bucks. I still have it 30 years later. Uh, I got a pair of them. They're, you know, I got a total of 600 bucks in them. Dude, I'll give you 300 for it. I, I just <laughs> sold a D version for 3,500 and was able to buy my air, my silent air conditioner yeah, so right. I could record condenser mics in the room. Well, that's <laughs> certainly going to go up in value. <laughs> <laughs> Makes the sessions easier. All right, cool. So, yeah, eleven. Yeah. It got to be eleven seventy six. In fact, I would just say my the, I have the, had the same vocal chain for twenty years, which is a Neumann five eighty two with a large capsule. It's it's a East German kind of a Gefelli thing into a API preamp five twelve into a uh, API 560 EQ, which is a, uh, which is a, uh, that's the graphic. That's the graphic. Yeah. yeah. It's the graphic into an 1176 into the channel, not Very even cool. into the board, but that's, nice, yeah, that's it. Well, and the cool thing about being a singer songwriter is you find a vocal chain that you really love on yourself and maybe stop looking so hard for the great vocal chain. <laughs> <laughs> well, sorry, everybody else, but well, no, but you know, Vocal chains are really important, uh, and what's really important nowadays, which didn't used to be important, is your your converter. Because if you know you can use, okay, how much? A good converter costs five hundred dollars a channel, or a thousand dollars a channel. I mean, like a really really professional one. Mm -hmm. Well, most people can't buy that, and you you can't expect your record to sound the same as. Uh, someone who has really good converters. If you've got your old Mbox, that what did the converter cost Digi to make? A buck <laughs> in parts. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe maybe. So you you really you know if you wanna if you wanna play with the big boys, you gotta buy some big boy tools. Or big girl tools. But yet you still have the story about the four track. You know, if you make a record on a four track and, and record it to a cassette, I suppose you could send the, send the cassette off to mastering, right? Yeah, you could. You could. But you're not, you know, you're not going to probably have the dynamic range and it's going to be one thing. It's not going to be able to be big and expansive. Right. If I found that four track records that sound really fantastic tend to embrace the character of the four track. So perhaps yeah. the inbox analogy is embrace the character of your inbox if you're going to use it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, or hire me to be the project mix fixer, there you project go. There studio you go. mix fixer. <laughs> All right, cool. So now share with us a favorite software tool, something that you really enjoy using. Uh, well, I, I use WaveLab and for mastering. It's a really, really a great DAW, but I also will use Pro Tools. I mean, I used to be in a, 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 the director of a school and we had 80 Pro Tools systems. We had like seven huge studios and you had to deal with all of the changes and of computers and things like that too. So I totally respect the modern DAW uh, and totally respect the fact that I'm not really necessarily a fan of the trouble it can get you into by using it. Yeah. 
Um, in a in a very uh, succinct way, can you describe the difference between Wave Labs and Pro Tools? I mean, what uh, Wave Labs is for Wave Lab is right? yeah, Wave Lab is is pretty much a um, it's designed as a mastering piece of software. You know, that's what it does. It does a lot more. I know, and I've never done it, but I know you can record multiple tracks. Uh, you can record stuff into it, but basically, it's just. Uh, it's for capturing and editing and putting in metadata and everything that you need to put out the final product. It's just it's the one that that I use and recommend. Well, so this is a little bit of a loaded question, but can you sort of briefly explain to listeners how something like Wave Labs handles plugins that are going on a on a track differently than the way you would put plugins on a I think it's pretty much the same. You can add plugins. You know. But I guess again, loaded question. Let's get to the point, Lidge. <laughs> so, so in, in a mastering software, you can assign, you know, some plugins to an individual piece region of audio, as well as plugins on the whole track itself that is mixing all the stuff that's that's getting mastered, right? You you can, but I don't. You I don't. don't okay. I don't. I don't really even use the plugins. Okay, it's, great. Just, that's why you, know, you didn't answer that question. That way, <laughs> like, plugins. Okay. Like, what? All right, cool. So awesome, man. All right, well, so now um, how about uh, a resource for the business side of doing music for a living? Anything, uh, any advice or, or, you know, it could be a person or it could be some tool that you use or a, a method, a way to deal with trying to earn money doing this? Well, no matter who you are, you're probably, you know, if if you're just starting out, a really good resource is someone who's been doing it longer than you that you can play your stuff to uh, and not and and ask for advice, uh, and have it come back to where it's not a criticism but a critique, and you can then learn from that, and uh, then do better work from. Uh, you know, you, everyone needs mentors, and I think you need to find mentors whether they're online or not. A, a mentor in a in a mastering situation where it, you know, I'm I work with. A number of producers, they'll send me mixes. I'll listen to them critically and say, "Well, okay, I can get rid of those S's, but it would be better if you did, so that I didn't get rid of the S on the vocal plus all the you know the high uh, harmonics on that guitar or whatever else is in that same vocal range." And so then you then they can come back and give me a mix fix, and then I'll master that. So I act as a mentor to other people as well, oh, that's you know, cool, to, man. to my clients. So I would just really say, find someone who's been around longer than you, develop a relationship as a mentee, and 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 get a mentor experience out of that. Because we all learn from somebody. Yeah. So indeed. we got to pay back. You know. Yeah. You know, we get to pay back. Is it paying forward or is it paying back? It's whatever. It's it's closing <laughs> the circle of create. Collaborate and community. Yeah, it really is. All right. So now imagine yourself, this is sort of a hypothetical question, but imagine yourself starting over again. You need a simple setup to record. You need to find people to record and you got to make ends meet while you do it. Now give the advice to, you know, somebody in this situation now, what would you recommend? You know, what do they need to record? How do they meet people? What I would say in terms of recording is that you have to figure out, well, are you a documenter of two-track? You know, is that what you're going to do? Um, but chances are it isn't if you're a multi-track recorder. 
Uh, find yourself a really good eight-channel interface uh, that has decent converters built in, and find yourself, you know, get yourself a laptop. And uh, just like we're recording this interview right now, is that you know, there's a laptop and a hard drive and an interface, and then use the you know, use the best cable you can. Uh, you know, buy yourself some Mogami cables or learn how to solder and make your own. Uh, you know, buy a, a few good, good, as good a mic as you can buy. You know, get a condenser, get a ribbon, get a dynamic. For years and years, I had an RE20 and a 57, you know. Nice. And then I bought my first 414 uh, condenser microphone. So basically, I had a dynamic. I had something that you could pound nails with that sounded good on guitar amps. And then I had a vocal mic. Well, or you had a kick mic, a snare mic, and an overhead for drums, there, right? There, okay. And then you use it for something else. So so that's, I guess, what, what I would say because then what I would do would be to, you know, once you're familiar with that, then I'd get yourself a good chain. And that's going to take you years years to put together because money doesn't grow on trees and that stuff costs a lot of money. So for one channel of anything, it's $500, whether it's an EQ or whether it's a mic pre, and that's buying, you know, used stuff. Right, uh, right. But nowadays you have a lot of boutique manufacturers that are uh, manufacturing DIY uh, 500 slot interface types of, of, of products. But really it's, it, it's your ears and ability to identify what something is going to sound like recorded in a certain room. So if you don't have all these reverbs and plugins, you probably have three or four rooms in your house that each sound different. So take your guitar, play your guitar in each one of those rooms, and all of a sudden you're going to go, oh, yeah, this sounds different. And then all you have to do is to back the mic up a little bit, and all of a sudden you get that room sound, and then trust it. So... So I guess that would be my my rig. And I've right, used right. those kinds of rigs, you know, recording in huts, you know, open-air huts in Mexico and and uh, on the beach uh, in Massachusetts and, you know, like all sorts of places. They're, they're pretty portable. Nice. And then you were telling me a story about playing music again with Larry. Is that right? Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. 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 Uh, I, then that, that seemed like a good story about, you know, finding people to play music Finding with. people to play music with can come from anything. Uh, when I was well, when I when I moved to Cleveland, I found the coolest club that played kind of rootsy music, and I went to the club and I saw this band called Hillbilly Idol, and Hillbilly Idol became my you know really good buddies, and you know they put out a bunch of records, and I ended up recording some of them. But I basically said, okay, I'm going to work with this guy, this guy, and this guy. Did they have a song called White Shotgun Wedding? <laughs> <laughs> No, but they had a song called "When It Rains, I Get Wet." <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so find good musicians to play with. Now, when I came to Nashville, I knew hardly anybody. So uh, one day I was uh, at uh, Home Depot, and I had this room here that I was, you know, that we're recording in right now, that had just this noisy ass record, uh, this air conditioner that's just, you know, it's like probably seventy dB. Seriously, 70 dB. And you turn it off, and within five minutes, it's hot and humid, and the guitars go out of tune, right? So I knew I needed a, an air conditioner. So they sent this guy over to, you know, to sell me an air conditioner. And this guy that they sent from that company was a guy named Larry Hawk. And Larry, they said, hey, you're a musician. 
you know, you know how to talk to musicians, and so you go over there and talk to them. Well, I found out that he had been a songwriter in town for about 25 years, had a bunch of deals, songwriting deals, had some cuts, did some stuff, but he was a little root, more rootsy rather than than a little bit more market-driven. Uh, and he's a guitar player uh, and a singer and has a deep gravel, gravelly voice, and I don't have a deep gravelly voice. All of a sudden, we decided that, hey, let's let's get together. Well, I was kind of re- reluctant at first going, well, I don't know, but you know, I'm a, I'm a solo singer-songwriter. Well, as it turned out, it was the best thing that I ever could have done by saying yes, because Wiggins and Hack are now Americana vocal duo. We write our own songs. It's a two-part harmony on everything. And he's become a really great friend and not only a songwriting partner, but a, you know, we're out there. You know, we're looking for an agent. We're playing gigs. We're going down to Birmingham. We're going out to Knoxville. We're you know doing stuff, and we're going to start on the circuit. You know? That's great, man. Living the dream. I but mean, seriously, but but you never know. Yeah, where people are going to come from. Well, I mean, I no no comment on on how old I, I'm guessing that you might be, but I'm you know we're not 20 anymore. We're not at that that the time in our life when we were in school for the first time, and it was like all you had to do was go to lunch and you meet people that wanted to do stuff. And as you get older, sometimes it does feel a little bit more isolated and like, how am I going to, I'm never going to find somebody like my, like my first band, you know, what, what did they say in, in church we were at this week? They talk about that, like living in the past, right? And uh, so it's just great to hear a story like that, that, you know, a reminder that you can still have that same kind of excitement at any point in your musical career, you know? That's right. And as far as dating myself, yes, I did see the Jimi Hendrix experience. And I was <laughs> nice. experienced at nice. the time. <laughs> nice. All right, cool. So here's the big daddy question of the podcast. It's the big doozy. Is it a um, big long drum roll now? Okay. Tommy Wiggins, tell us. What is the single most important thing our listeners can do to become rock stars of the recording studio themselves? I would say that you need to surround yourself and be around the best musicians you possibly can be because by recording them, you're going to be better at at being a recording engineer. And that really is it. If you want to be a better engineer, record better musicians. Yeah. You become a better musician too. Yeah, like my my understanding of musicianship improved tremendously once I moved to Nashville and started recording great musicians and great songwriters. You know, when the drummer at your session starts charting songs, first chorus, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and asking you for lyric sheets, then you know you're on a different, whole different, uh, different level of drummers than you are from your basic club you know, give me a beat drummer. Yeah. And, and uh, that makes you a better engineer, producer, musician, songwriter, uh, because you're put on the spot and you really have to have to nail it. Because yeah. these guys are and gals are better than you. Yeah. And also it's cool when people are doing that chart writing on sessions to see the way that it just keeps everything in focus. And you get to the you know the great end results so much quicker. Yeah, when people can hear a song, a group of people can hear the song, and an hour later you have a masterpiece of your music in the can, and everybody's high fiving. 
uh, to me, that's that's a religious experience, and that's why we record is so that we can make alchemy. We, you know, there's this idea in the songwriter's head, whether it's me or somebody else, and you put people in the room to to um, realize that song, and it and it, you know, isn't that why you do it? You know, yeah. it's like at, at the end, you just go, man, this is cool. <laughs> I think that's a great quote to end the interview on. And uh, thank you again for joining us today, Tommy, on Recording Studio Rockstars. Can you let uh, the Rockstars know how they can find out more about you and and if they want to reach out and connect with you? Is there is there a way they should do that? Yes, they can. For recording and mastering, it would be through my brand new website, Tommy's Tracks, T-O-M-M-Y-S-T-R-A-C-K-S dot com. And I have some cool videos that we shot as well, just to kind of show you, give you an idea of what we do here. Um, and uh, email would be Tommy at Tommy's Tracks.com. Nice. Well, thanks again. Oh, sorry. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Also, Wiggins and Hack, H-A-A-C-K. We're on Facebook. I'm on Facebook as well, Tommy Wiggins. Okay, groovy, groovy. And, and a reminder, we will include links to this all in the show notes. So rsrockstars.com, search Tommy Wiggins, and uh, it'll take you right to the blog post. And uh, if you're on your iPhone, just click right through and you'll see them right there and you just click right through. So thank you again, Tommy, so much for joining us. Really an honor to be here um, in this beautiful studio too. We're going to fire up some keyboards and jam for a bit. Let's do it. <laughs> oh, I thought we already jammed. Oh, yeah. No, I cool time. All right. <laughs> Cheers, man. We'll see you around Cheers. the studio. And thanks for doing what you do. You're welcome. Man. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.